This is a powerful text. We're going to talk about money and about God smiting, all of your favorite topics this morning. Um, so we're just going to jump right in. If, if you're your first time, you know, I talk about money, it seems like about once every three years, so you just happen to hit it on the day where it's going to come up in the text. Um, but, uh, but we're just, this is what we do, is we've, we're going through the book of Acts and we just try to listen to what the book is saying and really talk about that. So open up to Acts chapter 4. Verse 32, if you need a Bible, raise your hand and we'll pass one to you. Acts chapter 4, verse 32, we're going to be going through chapter 5, verse 11. Raise your hand, don't be shy, we want you to be able to follow along. And the page number in that particular Bible is uh, listed up here on the screen. If it's the white Bible, it's 630, if it's the blue Bible, it's 532. So you can look it up in that way. Now there's going to be two parts to this passage. It's really all about how the presence of the Holy Spirit in the community of faith shapes the way that we think about what we have and how we kind of use it and how we approach it. It's our posture towards it. And there's going to be what you're going to see is kind of a positive and a negative uh, example here in this passage. And we're going to, out of this, come up with three things that we want to be, quote unquote, great in our community. Three things that we want to be great as we do life together, as we're the church together. Verse 32 begins with a summary of the early church and the way that they uh, lived together and held things in common. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. So great power and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each one as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the feet, at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down And breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. 
And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. And undoubtedly, as you read that, you may experience a sense of fear as well. It's a powerful story. And my prayer and hope is that this morning, as we have some moments together to unpack this, it will begin to take shape and actually have a, a, a redemptive purpose in your life and in my life as well. So we're going to talk about three greats this morning. You may have seen them go by in the text. The first one is great power. Look with me in verse 33. The first part says, And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Last week we addressed this topic in the passage that precedes this one. We marveled at how the disciples, after they had been arrested and thrown in jail, immediately came out of jail, and their greatest concern, their greatest desire at that point was to be enabled by God to continue to be bold in their proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ. They didn't say, oh, God, make it so that we never experience that again. They said, Lord, give us strength to keep on going, even though we might be arrested or beaten or otherwise mistreated. And we talked about that in relation to last week being our 14th anniversary and how it could be our prayer, too, that God would enable us to continue to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ for the next 14 years and beyond, as he's enabled us to do for the last 14 years. And we learned how that kind of boldness that the disciples have comes, and it comes in these ways. First of all, they remembered that the world will rage against God's people. That was in verse 25 of the previous section. And so they remembered what was happening to them was normal. It goes all the way back even to the Psalms and beyond. God foresaw that the world would rage against Jesus and the world would rage against his people as well. And, and, and here's what happens is that the people of God go out with a beautiful, gracious, loving, merciful message that they're to proclaim, but the world misunderstands it. And so then there is this conflict. And I know that some of you have experienced that kind of conflict even over this last week or so. And it's normal. It's part of what happens with the people of God. And when we know that, it enables us to remain and to keep our boldness. The other thing that they did is they thought about how they were being like Jesus. Jesus was crucified on the cross. And so it made them bold to think we're experiencing things similar to Jesus. And we want to be like Jesus it also made them bold when they saw God stretching out his hands to accompany their proclamation with signs and wonders. And they prayed for that to take place, and it made them bold. And then lastly, they were made bold by the actual filling of the Holy Spirit. At the very end of last week's passage, they gathered together. The place where they were gathered together was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. And Pastor Dante and I were talking this week, and we were talking about this idea of being filled with the Spirit, which can be kind of mysterious to us. And so over the next couple of weeks, as he takes on one of the next passages, he's going to be really speaking into what does it mean actually to be filled 
with the Holy Spirit. So I'm very excited for us to, to learn and grow in that light. But by these means, we are made bold as a community to continue to speak about the goodness of Jesus Christ and the redemption of Jesus Christ. And so this whole thing that we've experienced, for example, with Thousand Oaks and not being able to move there should be viewed in this light, that, that, that it was never our purpose or our intention to get a building. Our purpose as a church, we exist to continue to proclaim the good news. And you know what? God's powerful enough to enable us to do that, whether we're here or there or the next place. And so that's what we focus on, and that's what we trust God to do. In fact, we've been talking as a church council about launching a continuance fund, and so we'll probably be uh, giving you more detail about that. But over the Christmas season, we wanted to begin to raise money towards being ready for whatever might come in the next season so that we can just be ready to move if we need to or do whatever uh, God might call us to do. So I'm just sort of putting a bookmark in your mind that that will be coming. But with God's help, we're going to be able to continue to speak the words, the proclamation of the gospel with boldness. And that was really a topic for last week. And so I'm going to leave it there and move on to the second thing that we want to be great. And that is the grace of God. Verse 33, second part of it. It talks about in the first part, the great power of the, where the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And then, and great grace was upon them all. So there's great power and there's great grace. And probably this term grace in this particular setting refers to the global sense. Grace is a, is a, a vast word with, that touches all facets of, of the way that God interacts with us, starting with the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and the, the offer of forgiveness that comes to those who would place their faith in Jesus Christ. That is an example of God's grace. But then His grace is mediated throughout the people of God as they love one another and serve one another. And that seems to be one of the primary meanings of this word grace here. Because if we look in the next verses, would you look with me in verse 34 and 35, you'll see there was not a needy person among them. This is how the grace of God was being outworked in, within them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Now, a few observations of what was happening here in this community as they're gathered together. This giving, this generosity, this outpouring was voluntary, it was spontaneous, and it was periodic. There's another passage in chapter 2 that talks about this similar dynamic. And in that, we see that the people would sell and, and bring as people had need they would sell things and use the proceeds to address the people's needs. And so this was not something that was legislated by the apostles. It was a movement of God within the community of faith. And people were spontaneously becoming more and more generous. So it was a beautiful. And as people saw this, they must have been so inspired and encouraged to see what God was doing. And the apostles, they, they were not calling for this necessarily. They were just the distributors of it. In fact, soon they're going to be delegating that work to somebody else. And so it was not a self-serving kind of a thing for them. And their generosity, which, which really is the substance of the great grace that they were experiencing together, their generosity was rooted 
in their oneness. Look with me in, in verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed, so all these people who come to faith in Jesus Christ, who said yes to Jesus when they saw everything that happened, they were of one heart and soul. So they were gathered together and they were in close quarters and they were sharing what they had. Their generosity was rooted in their oneness. And I would say that as moderns, we have a particular handicap when it comes to this kind of oneness. Our culture extols individualism, right? That's part of what the United States is built on. America is built on individualism, and that's not always all bad. But in this kind of sense, sometimes it can be a negative force because we think that everything that we need to do has to be dependent upon us. Furthermore, we have the kind of tools and the wealth and the technology that enable us to be incredibly independent. So, so we don't have the dynamic pressing us together that the early church had. And so they were forced to be in close quarters, to know each other's needs and to serve each other. Uh, they, they've, they've studied what it was like to be living in Jerusalem in the, in the days around the time of Jesus. And there is almost no place on earth that has the same kind of dense population, the density. So can you imagine living in these close quarters? Everybody would, would know what the other person is going through. You couldn't hide your vulnerabilities. They were always exposed. And so people knew how to help one another. They knew what to do. They knew where the needs were. They knew what the vulnerabilities were. And we don't have that, so we have to work sometimes to overcome that handicap. We need to risk becoming vulnerable with one another. That's part of what the Holy Spirit uses to draw us together and to create oneness. But unlike in the early church, we probably have to be a little bit more intentional in that process because it's super easy for us to hide all of our vulnerabilities, keep them apart from others, and in doing so, we create a, a wall, a barrier to the kind of oneness that God wants to create in the community of faith as the Holy Spirit provides for the needs of people by delivering through other people who have been given the resources that are needed and required. And I don't think this is just a financial thing. This has to do with all of our giftedness, all the ways, the words that we speak into each other, the encouragement, the prayers. There's a generosity that is contingent upon our being vulnerable with one another. So, so let that be an encouragement to us. And those of you who are in home groups, and I hope you're all getting in home groups, one of the best things that you can do in your home group is to get up on the cross of vulnerability and share with the group, this is where I'm struggling, this is what I need, so that people can move in and pray for you and be a part of your life in that way. And then on the flip side, you notice that the people who had the means, the people that had the resources, they're not trying to run away from opportunities. They're looking for opportunities to use their resources to bless others. Now, isn't it easy? I mean, if you're like me, you know, when, you, when, you, when, you, when an opportunity comes up, it's like, am I going to stick my head up and, and, and make it known that I see that? Or am I going to hide right, and turn the other way so I don't have to worry about having to help in this particular situation. 
These people had a different problem. They were scanning and looking, where are the needs? Where are the needs? Where are the needs? Now imagine a community in which all people are sort of living in that way. They're just looking out, scanning, where are the needs? And how can I be the answer to your need? And how can I be the answer to you? And we're all helping in just generous overflowing of love and, uh, and, and, and support for one another. When the people saw that, they said, wow, that is different. That is different. I want to be a part of that. It's part of what God uses to demonstrate the power that is in Christ in the community of faith. So their generosity was rooted in their oneness. It was also rooted in a clear sense of ownership. Look at verse 32, the second part of it. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Now, clearly, they didn't erase the concept of ownership. Okay? This is not a plea for socialism here or any other political doctrine. This is, this is an understanding that each one has in their individual self-conception that, that what I have, what I own in a superficial worldly sense is not actually mine. That's what this is saying. And I'm going to be ready to give it up for the need of others. And that's what they do. They're so quick to give it up. They understand that it's not theirs, that it belongs to God ultimately. They didn't view it as their own. Now, we often think, you know, in terms of, of the 10%, which comes from the Old Testament, we think that 10% of what we have belongs to God, and then the rest, the other 90%, is for us to do with as we will and to live on, right? So that's kind of like the, the, that's the model that we have oftentimes built in the modern church. But we're misunderstanding a fundamental dynamic here that was there present in the early church. And that is that no, actually everything you have belongs to God. Now, yes, you have to provide food. Yes, you have to, you know, take care of your needs. But at the end of the day, it all belongs to God. And if we look at what happens in the move from the Old Testament to the New Testament. People don't become, God doesn't become, the teaching doesn't become less generous as we move to the New Testament, right? If anything, it becomes more comprehensive, more generous. And so we should expect that 10%, we talk, why do we keep talking about 10%? Because in our human frailty, we need something to latch onto, something to jumpstart the process of giving. I need that. I need that. I need to, the 10% helps me because it reminds me of this is the starting place. But I don't want to stop there. This is why, why, sort of a sidebar, why budgeting is so important. Not because you, know, you just want to save endlessly as much as you can. Because by budgeting, you actually figure out what does it actually take for me to live on. And then the rest, I can really go on adventure with God with. Say, here's how we're going to use this to support other people. This is what we're going to use. That's why in, in the stewardship sense, budgeting is so important because you get a clear sense of what you actually need. And you might find that it's much less than 90%. So now you've got means. Now you've got means to go on an adventure with God. And this is, this is not constricting. This is freeing. Do you understand that you get to direct a portion of God's resources through your networks, your relationships, your prayer life, your walk with the Lord? You get to actually participate in directing a portion of God's resources into the world. How cool is that? And 
What the Bible teaches is that that is the very grace of God working through you to bless others. That's beautiful. And when people see that, they get inspired. When you get to be a part of that, you get inspired. You don't know what's going to happen. It's an adventure. It's, there's full of surprises. How is God going to use you to care for the people in your community? That's what the New Testament is really getting at ultimately. And that's what the people in the early church understood when they were, when they were looking at what they had. They didn't think, this is my stuff. This is, this, I'm a steward to use this for God's work. So let me pray, God, what do you want me to do with this? And let me look, God, where are the needs that I can answer? And that's what God wants to do in our church too, to enable us to be instruments of his grace. Have you considered that the God of the universe wants to deliver his grace through you? And have you asked him, how do you want to do it? And when we all start doing that, we start living with that kind of generosity, then what will be present in our midst is great grace. And we will see it. You know, you've seen it before. You've seen, maybe if you've been in a home group and somebody has this need and the whole group comes around and, and supplies us. This, happen, this happens regularly in our church. Everybody comes around and supplies this need and there's this sense of, whoa, something bigger than us is happening here. God is at work. And that's what he wants to do in us and in our church all the more. And we will experience his great grace in that way. So there's great power, there's great grace, and then we have to move on. There is great fear. Chapter 4 ends with Barnabas. You notice that he's an example of the kind of generous person that's been discussed. And Luke is genius here because he's introducing the character of Barnabas who's going to play all throughout the book of Luke, the rest of it. But he's also showing us that Barnabas was an example of this kind of generosity. And he's going to contrast Barnabas with what happens next, which is Ananias and Sapphira in this very traumatic uh, event that takes place. So the question that you're probably asking, the question that I was first asking, is what exactly is it that Ananias and Sapphira did wrong in this whole thing? Let's drill down. Because it's not that they didn't give it everything that they gained from the selling of the property, right? Because we've already said it was a voluntary process. Nobody was forced to give anything. It was all voluntary. And so... So they could, have, they could have just kept part of it and given part of it. So what was the problem? What did they do that was off base? Well, it seems that they falsely sought to gain spiritual recognition by having been seen as giving it all when they didn't. And so there's some things that kind of unravel from that that we can see what's really going on underneath the surface with them. First of all, they thus rejected the freedom of the gospel because this was, this was freedom, right? People could give what they wanted. They were rejecting that freedom because they were trying to now earn favor from God and people by being seen to have given more than they had actually given. And though probably, the, to me, it's hard to talk about these things, the deepest part is they scorned the work of the Holy Spirit. They viewed the movement of God in that community, which was very precious, as they despised it. They tried to manipulate the movement of God, the work of the Holy Spirit in the community at that time. That was the big thing. 
That was the big problem. That was their sin, is they were trying to manipulate God in a sense. And it wasn't like just accidentally, whoops, they conspired, they premeditated to do this very thing. As you can tell, you know, this is how much we're going to give and say and all that stuff. So, um, so, so that was the thing that, that resulted in their being smitten. And I don't mean that in the way we talk about it on Instagram, you know. I mean that in the old archaic way, right? And, and you ask, as I have, why so harsh? Why, why so harsh, this response? And the answer is, I don't know. We don't know. We don't know all the details. Because God works in sometimes, and you see this all throughout the Bible, he works in these mysterious ways. But it might be, on the one hand, to protect them, there's precedence for this, from going further down this path of trying to manipulate God. We probably shouldn't assume that they were damned as a result of this. There's a, there's a passage in 1 Corinthians, if you want to look it up, 5.5, 5, where it talks about how uh, in sometimes the, the flesh will be destroyed to save the soul. Perhaps this fits into that category. We don't know. And it might be that they were being, that the whole community was being protected because what God was doing in that moment was so precious and so important, so significant for all eternity that it needed to be carefully guarded and protected. One of my mentors, Don Carson, says this. He says, and we'll put it up, in times of genuine revival, judgment may be more immediate than in times of decay. When God responds to sin with prompt severity, lessons are learned and the church is spared a worse drift. Those are some thoughts, but whatever the case, it happened, and the result was that great fear came upon them. In fact, it's said twice, great fear came upon them. And I don't think we're to understand that as a bad thing. That is a good thing. Along with the great grace, the great power, the great fear. It's a good thing that this came on the community. So how do we understand this? I know a lot of us have baggage around the fear of God, um, and some of this comes from home settings or church settings where the doctrine of the fear of the Lord was mishandled, or maybe we were, we were, we were in fearful situations, and so whenever we try to approach this, this understanding, this idea of reverence, we recoil and go the other way. And, and as a result, we're missing a really important part of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, to have a sense of reverence, some, a healthy fear of the Lord. And so what is fear, really, if we step back? Now, when we're thinking about Jesus, we're not thinking about that abusive kind of uh, circumstance that we might have been in. Remember, this is, this is the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ who went to the cross to offer himself an atoning sacrifice because... God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, right? This is, this is coming out of that place. So whatever God does, he's ultimately doing it for good, okay? So, so, so we have to understand it, and maybe for some of us, we have to separate it from some of the, the unhealthy baggage or abuse that, that we may have experienced. This is a fear that is ultimately healthy and good, and so... To grow as a disciple, we have to learn to embrace 
this kind of fear. Now, I grew up in San Diego, and I went to the beach all the time, and my parents still live there. And uh, so when we started having kids, and there's little kids, and we're going to the beach all the time, and it dawned on me really quickly that there is a great danger when you're at the beach with little children. Because the ocean is powerful. And I learned that all through my growing up, the multiple times when I was held under by a wave too long, and I thought, this is the very end, right? And, I, and, and we've learned it with one of our, we almost lost one of our nieces one time to kind of a, a rogue wave situation. And so to teach our kids a health, healthy sense of reverence for the ocean was a key goal. Wanted them to enjoy it, but also wanted them to fear it in a particular way. For their own safety, right? Now, the, fear, the reverence for the ocean can also, it's not just a negative thing. I mean, it, when you finally do catch a wave and you feel this immense power welling up underneath you and propelling you forward, there's a kind of a reverence that comes from that positive experience too. Because you, you're in touch with the power of it. And this is what the early church was being taught that when the Holy Spirit moves like that wave, there is an immense power that is happening, and it would do you well to approach it with great reverence, humility, perhaps some hesitation and some fear about the power that is at work in that. Like the ocean, God is, is living and moving and doing things right now. It's true every moment, and it's so easy for us to run roughshod over the work of God. Now, there'll come a day when we can't run roughshod over anything that God does when he comes back in full power. But right now, for some reason, we can ignore the work of God. We can insert our own agenda in the middle of what God is doing. And if you're like me, you catch yourself doing that all the time. To live reverently is to live with an awareness of the movement of the Holy Spirit, that every moment is precious. Every person is supernatural. Everything that God has made is part of his general revelation of who he is. It's to live with that kind of mystery uh, present all the time. It's to approach uh, all things with a, a sense of expectancy. What might God do? What is he doing right now? Some of you, like me, you're frustrated because you go long stretches without considering God. You're, you're thinking about God now, but tomorrow morning when you wake up on Monday and you go to work, you might catch yourself at like 11 or 12 or 1. You'll say, gosh, I haven't even thought about God. I'm convinced that one of the solutions to that is a proper reverence for the Lord. If we really understand what we're dealing with, and the power of God and the work of the Holy Spirit and what God wants to do, we will move through life with a greater kind of sensitivity to what might be happening. When I was on sabbatical, this phrase came into my mind because I was working on these things and, and trying to think, what does it mean to really... We live in a culture that is so irreverent, right? This reverence thing is really hard for us because we don't want to bow before anybody or anything. You know, we don't have to because we have all the tools. To... This is a hard thing for us as Christians, modern Christians. We have to work double to understand what was basic to the early Christian. 
the world was very powerful then. Now, we get to see a little bit here and there. But so much of life, we can get away. So, so, so I'm in sabbatical, and I'm working on this. And this phrase comes to my mind, the golden pause. And here's how I'm using this. Is that before I act or I speak, I'm waiting. The golden pause. Just simply to acknowledge, God, you are here. You might be doing something that I didn't expect, so I want to keep myself open to what you might be doing here, just to put myself on alert. And I'll tell you, to the extent that I'm able to live into that, what I see is an Andrew who's getting on board with the work of the Holy Spirit in ways that Andrew, when he shoves his own agenda forward, never could. And how will it be for us as a church? As as I pray is already happening, the Holy Spirit continues to come upon us. We prayed about this last week. We're going to teach into it next couple of Sundays. As the Holy Spirit continues to come upon us to empower us, what will that mean for the way that we respond? It will mean for us that it will be incumbent upon us to have a greater sensitivity, perhaps a greater humility and a deference to the work that God might actually be doing in this moment. To hold back inserting our agenda into the situation. To just stick up the antenna and say, Lord, what's going on here? What what do you want from me in this moment? Should I act? Should I wait? When we gather together to pray, we're listening. Listening to people praying, we're waiting. We're thinking, we're asking, God, teach me to pray. What do you want me to pray right now? It's it's this sense that we're small and God is big and he's living and he's on the move. And in our smallness, we have the privilege to catch this wave. But we're not going to catch it if we're not listening. We're not reverent. We're not seeing the power. So God, would you help us as a church to have the kind of sensitivity that the early church had here where they were, they were filled with a healthy kind of fear. Oh, they were hopefully terrified of manipulating the work of the Spirit. That's, we don't want to use the blessings you give us for our own benefit, personal manipulation. God, keep us from that. Thank you that you forgive us when we, for when we do it. We want to ride the the movement of the Holy Spirit in this community, which I believe is happening and increasing all the more. You are a powerful God. You are a mighty God. You are a glorious God. You are exalted. You are loving. You are merciful. If we could see you, In all of your attributes, we would throw ourselves on the floor in worship. God, we want to live with that vision stuck in our minds and shaping how we move, how we speak, and how we act. Lord, you can only do, only you can do this. We can't do it in our own strength, we don't have the capacity. So we're inviting you this morning, again, 
to fill us with your great power, to fill us with your great grace, and even to fill us with great fear. That we might live as your disciples. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.